Welcome to the Lift Church podcast. We pray that this message encourages you and inspires you to live up to your God-given potential. Fantastic. You know, I'm a little bit sad. I'm a little bit sad because Super Size Me is about to come to an end. I don't get to do any more research in McDonald's. No, I haven't actually done any. <laughs> Have we? We even haven't touched McDonald's in forever. Um, but I'm a little bit sad because I feel like personally, I've only jumped in into the series right at the end. Over the last three weeks, I've been like, man, God showing me so much about generosity. And, and it's kind of sad that I don't get to teach about it because that means that I'm not going to get paid to research into generosity in the Bible so that I get to teach you guys about it. So that's a little bit of a sad thing for me. But I'm hoping that what happens, what has happened so far and what will happen today is going to set you up to explore this for yourself. This is not a series that, okay, generosity started at the start of October, it finishes at the end of October, and then we all move on and forget about that. No, this is something that is so key, and God's really put it on my heart that that generosity is not something that we do, but it's something that we are as a church. Live Church is generous. And with that, you know, we we love having things like compassion, uh, but we also love uh, uh, doing things in our community. So in December, we are already in contact with MANA, an organization in Vic Park that feeds homeless people. And we are working out how over Christmas, the Christmas season, whether it's the start of December or something, we can be a part of, of doing something in our town to help people in our town. So uh, MANA uh, uh, produces 800 fruit hampers over Christmas for homeless people, 800. Am I right, Shell? 800? Yeah. And they're also needing volunteers to help out in their kitchen uh, uh, to give their regular volunteers a bit of a chop out over uh, the festive season. And so as a church, we are going to uh, be there and we're going to say, yes, we would love to do that. And it's not because uh, it makes us feel good, but it's because we are generous. This is something that I hope that we all get through this. We are generous, and doing generous things is just a product of our heart. And, and so I hope that that's really stirred something up in you over the last few weeks. Uh, let's, let's speak out that, um, that verse that has been drummed into your memory over the last four weeks together. Proverbs 11.24, the For those who are listening on podcast, I don't know if you heard anything, but too bad. It was beautiful. You could hear the angels singing as the whole church said this together. Um, but anyway, to give you guys a bit of a break from Proverbs 11.24, because you guys obviously know it so oh. You guys know it so well. I wanted to focus on another verse for today, and this is a verse that I hope that you really start to study for yourself as well. It's in Isaiah 54, uh, verses 2 to 3, and the reason why this is such a key verse uh, in the future for us as a church is that this is going to be a big part of our vision for 2017. And, and a huge thing about this is that it gives us three things to work on. We need to have enlarged hearts. We need to lengthen our reach, and we need to strengthen our roots. 
And so you're going to be hearing me and Beck talk about this a lot over 2017 and in the coming months as we unpack what God is wanting to do. But let's read that together. This one's from the NLT this morning. It says, Enlarge your house, build an addition. Spread out your home and spare no expense, for you will soon be bursting at the seams. Your descendants will occupy other nations and resettle the ruined cities. What a powerful verse. What a powerful pa- passage. I, lo- I know being in the church for a long time, the church pastors love pulling this out as one of those like vision things because they're large. It's such a cool thing to know that God is wanting to do so much more. But this morning, I want to talk about something that I hate about God from this passage. And, um, you know, there are some things that, um, that God does that I don't like. I love that He heals, I love that He saves, I love that His grace is more than sufficient, but I hate it when He uses the word soon. I hate it when God uses the word soon, because the word soon, in my opinion, means now. Anyone like that? I hope dinner's soon, babe. Really, it's like, you should have had this ready five minutes ago. Anyone like that? Yeah. So when God says soon, we're kind of like, now. It, it, it makes sense, but just so that you understand why I hate the word soon when God uses it is like, for example, in the verse that we just read, uh, the context of it is that Israel had sinned and fallen away from God, and so they were taken into exile into uh, a land called Babylon, evil nation Babylon. And they were in Babylon uh, uh, for a, a, a time, and, and Isaiah the prophet, where this passage comes from, prophesies about the exile and tells them, if you don't turn to Jesus, if you don't turn to God, your nation is going to be wiped out, basically, and your people are going to be taken away. Your sons, your daughters are going to be taken to a foreign land. But here in this passage, Isaiah is prophesying hope, and he says that soon, Even though you will be in captivity, the captivity hadn't happened yet, but it was going to happen, is that, but soon God will bring you guys back. And he was saying that your future is even brighter than your now, that soon things are going to open up and it's going to be amazing. And so I can imagine that when you hear a prophecy of such hope, you're like, yes, so much hope. Um, and, And the truth is, that the fulfillment of this prophecy, at the very least, took 70 years. And I don't think most of us even can comprehend what 70 years is, because I'm 30, and I'm like, that's twice my age plus 10. That's a long time. If God soon is 70 years, you can see why I don't like it. And, and, and this is the other thing, as I was looking to this passage, there are some commentators that say the fullness of what God was prophesying in Isaiah 54 hasn't even come into fullness yet, which means God soon is 3,000 plus years. God is prophesying a job for you soon. Some of you single people, you will be married soon. That really gets me that God soon doesn't work with our time frame. And the thing is that we we hinge so much on the fulfillment of God's promises in our lifetime and in our now that we get frustrated with God. 
and we end up pushing God away. The number of people that I know that are so walking, that are so walked away from God, they, they've just abandoned faith and abandoned God is because, they, well, God promised something that I never saw. And this morning, I want to talk about how to deal with God soon. And in case you didn't already pick it up, the way that we can deal with God soon and work with God soon is generosity. Generosity helps us work with God soon. And the rest of this morning, I'm going to unpack this for you. And we are going to have a good hard look at the life of King Hezekiah to help us understand why generosity helps us work with God soon. See, Hezekiah was actually one of the greatest kings of Israel. He did amazing things. And a part of why his life and his leadership were so amazing was you have to understand where he came from. His dad was King Ahaz, who was one of the most wicked kings of Judah. He brought in idol worship and, and he turned the nation of Israel away from worshiping God to worshiping these idols. In fact, King Ahaz was so brazen that he took the temple of God and that in the Old Testament, there was one place that God truly put his name and that was the temple that Solomon had built. And what King Ahaz did is that he cleared out all of God's stuff and he put in all of his idol stuff. He actually, like, completely profaned the name of God. He completely disregarded God and he turned a nation away from God to the point where he would uh, take his children, his son, burn his son in the fire to worship these false gods. And the, 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 uh, when you look into the, the worship of these false gods, Moloch and, and Baal and, and stuff like that, it is, it's horrendous. They would go through these ceremonies uh, in this valley and, and they, would, uh, they would burn children as sacrifice to their gods. And what they would do is that they would have loud music going on so that it would drown out the cries of the children so that their consciousness would not be seared or would not be touched by the spectacle that was in front of them. They made it a party. The next generation died because of this idol-worshipping people. So Hezekiah arrives on the scene with all of that happening, and the first thing he does is to clean out the temple. You have to understand that when a whole nation is, is in this practice, turning millions of people back to God is not an easy thing. You know, as a church, we want to see the town of Vic Park changed, but the town of Vic Park is probably 30,000, 40,000, and it's taking us a long time to even do anything in this place, much less a nation of, of maybe a million-plus people. But, but Hezekiah set out, and he started first in the temple. He cleaned out all the idols, reinstituted all of God's practices, and turned the nation back to God. He, he got rid of all the idol worship everywhere in the land of Judah so that Israel would turn back to God. And so God brought about a peace and a prosperity to, to Judah that had not been seen for many generations because of one man's desire to serve God. Amazing. There was even another story where Assyria, who was a world power at that time, had come through, had killed off a whole bunch of different nations, and now they were at Judah's doorstep. And, and, and Hezekiah prays to God and says, God, you need to do something. And so God, in the middle of the night, gets rid of 158,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army so that they, when they woke up, it was like they were in a graveyard. And so they fled back to the nation because of what God had done. 
This was the kind of stuff that Hezekiah had seen. This was the kind of stuff that he was leading Judah into. And he was a great king, but it wasn't without his challenges. And one of those particular personal low points for Hezekiah uh, is found in Isaiah 38. And what happens in that passage is that Hezekiah actually falls really sick to the point of death. And Isaiah is given this really, in my opinion, crappy word to have to deliver to the king. And, and Isaiah actually goes up to Hezekiah and he says this, put your house in order because you are going to die. Can you imagine having to go to the king to tell him that God says you are about to die? Pretty scary stuff. But anyway, Isaiah is a man of God. He's obedient to God and he prophesies the exact word that God says. And, and Hezekiah in that moment did what most of us would probably do if we were faced with such news. And Hezekiah was already bedridden. And so he was in his bed and he, he turns to the wall. The Bible says he turns to the wall and he begins to cry bitterly. He weeps and he says, God, remember me. Remember my devotion to you. And you know, I know some of us struggle with this idea of what's the point of praying. But in this one passage in the Bible, with this one simple prayer, the Bible doesn't even record Hezekiah says, heal, heal, heal me or anything like that. He just says, remember me, God. So much so that Isaiah was making his way out of the palace and he was probably close to the door when he gets a word, a download from God again. And God says, turn back to Hezekiah because I've heard his prayer. Go back and tell him that I'm adding 15 years to his life. For people who don't believe that God answers prayer or, or who don't understand, struggle that prayer is such an important thing, the Bible records that there was this one king who in a personal time of distress, he turns to God and it was only a matter of probably 10, 15 minutes that he got a fresh word of God that changed the rest of his life. For people in this room, I know I've just said that maybe your soon looks like 3,000 years in the future, but God is able to do a soon that is 10, 15 minutes down your line as well. Some of you need to understand that God is closer than anything. He, he, the Bible tells me that He keeps every single one of my tears and He understands my sorrow. So prayer is a powerful thing. And Hezekiah found that out that day when in 15 minutes, God turns a word of death into a word of life but this is where the tragedy really happens because in Isaiah 39 something weird really happens and 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 the things that I, I've read through these passages but I read chapter 38 as one thing and then I was reading chapter 39 as another thing and in isolation it makes sense but when you put them together it really doesn't and I hope that you, 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 you catch it as well with me because when I was reading it, I was like, what is going on? So Hezekiah gets better, right? And, and he's all good and well now. And, and what happens is this other nation, Babylon, which I had mentioned later on in history, takes over the whole nation of Israel. But at this time, they were just another nation. Assyria was the world power. Babylon was, was just waiting in the wing, so to speak. Uh, but the, the Babylonian king heard that Hezekiah was sick, but now as well. And so he sends a, an envoy to come and to give gifts to Hezekiah to congratulate him on his recovery. And the thing about what we need uh, about our Babylon and the thing about the Bible that we need to understand is that Babylon in the Bible always represents man's strength. 
always. In Genesis, we read about a bunch of people that came together and said, let us be like God in our own eyes and build this tower so that we can reach heaven. And, and God struck them down, and that tower is called the Tower of Babel, which is where Babylon comes from. So when we read about Babylon in the Bible, always keep in mind that it represents man's strength. So this envoy from Babylon comes to Judah and comes to Hezekiah, congratulates him. And what Hezekiah proceeds to do is something that dooms the, the, the nation of Judah uh, from that time on. He basically shows Babylon all of his wealth, all of his treasuries, all of his strength, and all of his armories. And in that moment, he was saying, God, I know how to handle this myself. I'm turning to my own strength. Now, you might not see this as a big deal, but God does. Uh, we don't have time to really dive into this whole thing about our strength and pride and all that kind of stuff. But basically, know that God doesn't like that. There's another message for another time. Uh, but Isaiah, the man who gets to tell the king that he's about to die, gets to give him another prophecy. And so we pick it up in Isaiah 39, 5-8. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there would be peace and security in my days. Did you catch it? Did you catch this amazing juxtaposition between Isaiah 38 and 39? Do you see something weird that was going on? For those who are still kind of trying to get where I'm going with this, Isaiah 38, Hezekiah has a personal struggle. The personal struggle leads him to pray, which then brings a breakthrough. Isaiah 38, the passage that we like. We all want to know that when we pray, breakthrough happens and that God comes through. And it's true. It happens in the Bible all the time. Isaiah 39, Hezekiah does something out of his personal pride that upsets God. God brings a prophecy that affects the future generations. And Hezekiah says, that's a good word. Personal death. Cries, praise, a word that affects the future. Okay. And this begin to stir my heart that in our church, I'm worried that I'm giving us too many words of, you got to struggle, pray, God will come through. But we're not giving enough messages of the future is stuffed up and something needs to happen in order that we don't get a stupid response that Hezekiah said, oh, it's God's word, it's cool, because it won't happen to me. 
You see, this is where God began to really stir something in my heart. We're always looking for God's soon, but we're only looking for God's soon in our lifetime, but we don't understand what God's soon means for the future. We are only good at thinking and stewarding what's happening now, which is important, but we don't care about the future. You know, the sad thing about what happens from here is that Hezekiah lived out his 15 years, but he didn't put his house in order, like what God had intended for him to be doing, so that when his son Manasseh took the throne, it was like Hezekiah never existed. What happened when Manasseh took over, the first thing he did was to clear out the temple like his grandfather did, bring in the idols and reinstituted child sacrifice. Hezekiah's reign lasted only his lifetime and was gone the moment he was gone. And I'm worried for our Christian church because we get so caught up with bringing breakthrough now, but we don't know what is happening and what is about to happen under our own roof. We have a church that needs to be generous, not in what we see right now, but generous for generations to come. And, and this is the thing, I, I heard this message a little while ago, I know I'm getting a bit intense this morning, but I hope you catch the heart. But I heard this message a while ago that said that when a godless culture is in operation, the next generation is always the first to be sacrificed. When a godless culture is in operation, the next generation is always the first to be sacrificed. I hope that sinks in because this generosity talk can cause us to want God to move in our lives and we can experience that success and a breakthrough, but we can forget that we are meant to have generational impact. See, this is so important for us as a church because Lift Church is generous, which means that I'm going to make decisions that might cause us in this generation to have to work harder, but it's for the benefit of the next generation, that my sons will have a, a church that is far more effective and far more influential than in our time that my daughters will have a church that is thriving and full of life than what it is in our time. Now, I want a church that is full of life and influential and impacting our community today, but I understand that the next generation is far more important than what is happening in my day. You see, Hebrews 11 shows us something that is really interesting, and I struggled again. I, I'm giving you a lot of verses that I struggled with this morning. Um, Hebrews 11 is a chapter of faith. It talks about Abraham, Moses, David, all these amazing faith heroes of the Bible. And, and, and it's really cool, but then it ends up really bad. It says that there were a whole bunch of people that basically were martyrs. They died for their faith. And then it ends up with verse 39 and 40. And it says, oh, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. But bow. But then it goes on, and this is how I used to read it. Since God had provided something 
better. See, what I used to think about this verse was that these people had an internal mindset, which we do need, by the way. The Bible does talk about that a lot. It talks about how in the afterlife, we're going to have this reward for serving God. So don't store up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust will destroy, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where it cannot be touched. And it tells us not to worry about suffering now because in the afterlife, the due reward will will come. That's how I used to read it. But then I realized that I just did not have good English. Because this is what it says. They did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And as I was thinking about this, something began to strike in my heart. These people that suffered for us, they were holding on to a promise that was for the future. The soon of God, they understood, wasn't for their time, but was going to pass through them to the future. We live and we are perfecting the soon of God for the previous generations. I think this is not sinking in. They did not receive what was promised. The soon of God didn't happen in their lifetime, but God was providing something better for the future generations through them. Faith is not about believing for God's promises to come through for you today. Faith is about believing that God's kingdom is about to hit earth in a brand new, earth-shattering way, but it might not come in your time. Are you still willing to serve a God who might not fix those things that you want fixed in your now, but He's working something better so that the promises that He makes to you today is going to be made perfect later? A generous church is not so much concerned with whether people get jobs, whether they get uh, into good relationships, whether they get all their comforts met, whether they get to go to vacations, and whether they get to live comfortably as it is about the future and seeing God's kingdom influence and impact generations to come. We need to understand that faith, faith is always future focused. Faith is not focused on my needs right now, but faith is seeing God working through me and the soon of God flowing through me for the future generations. I'm finishing off this series because I can understand that quite often we catch a whole of generosity for ourselves and we know that it impacts people, but do we know that it impacts generations to come? Do we know that it affects our children and our children's children? Or are we a people that are living for the now and are sacrificing children for our self-gratification? That is a question that we need to ask ourselves. And, and I, I don't know how to really bring this message across because it sounds harsh and it sounds like God doesn't care for you. The truth is, God cared enough for you that He died for you. And that used to be enough. For many of you, it used to be enough. 
that used to be enough for you to go, God, I will serve you for the rest of my days. But somehow things happen, and I've been there. I'll serve you, God, I'll serve you, God, but you need to give me a girlfriend. No girlfriend, I hate you, God. I love you, God, I love you, God. I lost my job, God, you don't care for me anymore. I'm not meaning this to sound in a way that God doesn't care for you, but God's got a bigger picture than you. And when we get so caught up in those things that we so want that God's not fulfilling, we could end up being a part of a culture that is sacrificing our children, burning our children in the fire so that we get what we want and what we need, or rather what we think we need. The message of generosity makes us larger and larger because it's no longer just about me and my time. It's about the next generation to come. And we need a church that is willing to lay down soon being my time and soon working through us for generations to come. I personally have a dream of having a platform to be able to preach God's word to thousands of people. But if that soon doesn't come in my lifetime, but it flows to my sons and my daughters and my grandchildren, am I okay with that? Am I okay with that? Are we going to be people that cries and weeps when something is happening to us, but when a word is given that it affects future generations? It's not happening to me. Don't let this just be a message that is condemning, but I'm hoping that it's just stretching your mind a little bit. And, and a part of this is that practically, what are you going to do to make your life generational in impact. Last week, Beck and I were at uh, a conference, and one of the preachers preached about um, having a theology, an understanding, a God understanding on, on our finances, and, and it really impacted me, and the truth is, Beck and I are uh, about to work that out uh, for our budget for 2017 and beyond, and, but he gave this word that was really interesting, and he said that many of us deal with our finances without really thinking about future generations. And so many of us Christians have this uh, concept of a, a 10, 10, 80 lifestyle, where the first 10 belongs to God is our tithe. We don't touch it. That, that, that belongs to God. And so we do that. And then a lot of people have another 10% that they, that they look at giving away and all that kind of stuff, which is great. Uh, but then we live on the 80, and, and, and so that's all good. But then he was, one, he was saying, how, how many of us are actually doing anything about the future? And so he gave this idea of, of running our finances with a 10, 10, 10, 70 mindset. 10, 10, 10, 70. And, and basically, first 10% is a tithe. It goes to God. It's straight out. just goes to God. It's, it's not for us to, to play with. And I did talk about this three weeks ago, and that's why I'm just breezing through it. If you want a deeper understanding, you want to chat about it, we can do that. But the first the tithe goes to the church. That's done. 
He said, the next 10%, you take it as a seed, a seed offering. You are doing this to bring change and to bring impact into, into the community. And uh, the, the Bible says that uh, do not bece- uh, be deceived. Whatever you sow, you shall reap. And so he was saying, you need to have something to sow. So he's sown to stuff. So things like compassion is a great way to seed, to sow out of yourselves and to impact people and to impact uh, uh, the, the world as it is right now. Maybe you want to partner with Manor. Maybe you want to partner with Pregnancy Problem House, these organizations that we have spoken about and partnered with. Or maybe you're going to find something that you can trust that you're going to seed into. Or maybe you trust the church to continue to do the great work that we are uh, attempting to do and, and are hopefully doing. And so you seed it into the church. But what are you seeding? Are you seeding anywhere? But then he said that the third 10%, and this is what he advises people to do, is to put it aside and save it for the future generation. And he said uh, it can be in, in, the, in the form of a uh, property investment that is going to come back for the future uh, or, or, or into some kind of savings account that gets you this interest. Or basically he was saying that 10% he does not touch for his own vacations, for his own um, uh, rainy days. He has other accounts set up for all of that kind of stuff. He says, I'm setting this up so that I get my sons and my daughters and my grandchildren to have something that they can live off. And and he was saying that, yeah, through this kind of mindset, he he set up his, his children not to have to worry about mortgages. Not to have to worry about being under financial stress and debts because he has actually put uh, uh, foresight into his finances to plan for the future. And so with that, he lives on the 70%. And, and he said it's is very doable. Uh, he, he said that he, he talked to one of his youth about it. Uh, sorry, I think it was one of his nephews about it. And his nephew started putting that money aside. By the time he was 16 years old, he had something like $8,000 saved up already ready to do stuff, you know, is, is, is that kind of mentality that my finances is not just going to be for this generation, it's going to be for future generations. I am giving to God what God is due, I am seeding what I need to seed, and then I am saving for the next generation because my life is going to have impact beyond myself. If you want to take that kind of a challenge along with Beck and myself, let's do it. I'm, I'm, I, it's scary for me. Beck and I work on one income, and we, and we try to make all of this work, uh, but, but we, we don't just want to have a great life. We want our children to have a great life, too. So 10, 10, 10, 70, you said maybe right now you can't start with 10, 10, 10, 70. Maybe you start with 10, 5, 5, 80. Do something. Let our lives speak to generations. And it might not just be finances, but what are you planning for the future? Do your children grow up loving God and loving the church? Do you bring the Word of God into your environment? Or are you more caught up chasing after things that make you feel better? Maybe you don't even have children yet. And that's cool. I don't have kids yet. But this kind of a word challenges me to be generous with generations that have not even come yet. And when we get this right now, then we don't have future generations that are being sacrificed for us. A couple of elections ago, I listened to one of the former deputy prime ministers 
and he said, he issued a strong warning out to Australia. And he said, the age of entitlement is over. The age of entitlement is over. The future generations are being lumped with our debt because we keep campaigning for more for us, not knowing that we're actually withdrawing from the future. That really hit me because I was like, yes, let's do all this great stuff. All of us were like laughing our heads to the bank when uh, Paul Rudd, Kevin Rudd um, gave us $400 each. And we're like, whoo. And then we we're like, oh my gosh, we actually just killed off. We were withdrawing from the next generation. What environment are you setting in your home now that's going to impact the future? What kind of practices are you setting now that is going to impact the future? Maybe we can get the band up this morning. I know this is a sobering thought, and I know this is not a fun thought, but this is a thought that really is challenging me. Like I said last week, um, if I sound harsh, it's because I need to wake myself up. We live in an environment that is so conducive and easy to think about ourselves first. And we need a bit of a wake-up call in order that generosity starts to kick in in our spirit and starts to change things around. As a church, we are always going to support you. We will always make time to pray for you, to cook meals for you if you fall sick, that kind of stuff. We, 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 we don't mind, and in fact, it's important for us to serve this generation but we also need to have an eye on the next generation. And that means each and every single one of us. It means doing some difficult things now in order that we hit and impact the next generation. In closing this morning, I have this one thought. There are two ways to find meaning in our life. Two ways. The first way is through self-gratification. You work, work, work in order that you can have the money to spend on yourself. You do jobs that satisfy you. You buy stuff that satisfies yourself. You watch movies that make you feel good. I'm not saying any of those are in itself bad. I love movies. I love buying cool stuff. I love going for vacations. but when it becomes a lifestyle of self-gratification. That's one way to pursue meaning. It is. It truly is. It, it happens because people actually do find that it somewhat works in their life. But if I can fast forward you to where that ends up, it looks dangerously like a very thick wall that you're going to hit your head against or a very deep pit that ends up with nothingness. See, that's one of the ways that you can find meaning for yourself. Find self-gratification. Go do it. Try it out. Or it will end up in emptiness in your soul, in your life. Everything will seem completely meaningless. There is another way that you can find meaning in your life. And that is through generosity. 
where your life is not ending when you take your last breath, but it's about the legacy that you are leaving behind. It's about the next generation knowing God and serving God and loving God. It's about our grandchildren having this platform that we have built in order to change the world. And let me tell you, that kind of lifestyle, no one can take from you. But at the same time, that kind of lifestyle is too hard for us. It really is too hard for us. And that's why we have a generous God that gives first to fill us up in order that we can fill someone else up. See, everything that I'm talking about today is not about you working it out in your strength. It's about you trusting God that He's going to care for every single one of your needs so that you can continue to empty your cup into the next generation and into the people around you in a generous lifestyle. You know, that kind of life where you're just pouring out and pouring out and pouring out will still hit emptiness. But when you have a God of abundance, when you have a God who always has enough, who's always willing to fill you up, your cup will never run dry. And that's what the Bible talks about. My cup runneth over because I have a God who is so generous with me. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this platform. I've got stuff and gear in my life that I'm still working through, but God gives me because He knows that I'm going to empty my cup. When I come here on a Sunday morning, I'm emptying my cup. I'm saying, God, I need to get this out of me. When I go to work, when, I, when we partner with Red Frogs or Manna, all the stuff that we do is with a kingdom mindset that is going to impact generations and change people's lives. But the only way I can do that is in my home, in my place, God is saying, here, this is, this is all that you're going to need. I'm going to be all that you need. See, the soon of God is not for you, it's for the future generations. But at the same time, when the soon of God flows through you, you're going to find a life full of meaning and purpose. Thank you for tuning in today. If you would like to find out more about Lift, check out our website at theliftchurch.com.au.